Chapter Fifteen of Ride Proud Rebel by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Independent Scout. What did the doc say? Kirby, his blue overcoat, a splotch of color against the general drabness of the winter scene, came up towing Hannibal and his own mount. Doesn't think he should try it. Drew made a lengthy business of pulling on the knitted gloves he had acquired only that morning as a swap for a captured Yankee colt. The infantry, back under the solid security of Joe Johnson's leadership, had marched on into North Carolina to face Sherman's destructive sweep there. In the West, the only effective Confederate force still in the field east of the Mississippi was Forrest's cavalry, and they had been granted twenty days' furlough to return home if they could get there, and gather clothing and fresh horses. The sun was far down the western horizon of the Confederacy. But to the men who rode with Forrest, it had not yet set. The kid wants to go. That was the worst of it. When they listened to Boyd's eager talk, saw him make the effort to get on his feet again, they were almost convinced that the youngster could make the trip back through enemy-held territory to Oak Hill. Kirby, though he had no ties in Kentucky, was willing to chance the journey to help Boyd home. But those miles between, where they must skulk and maybe even fight their way, living out, eating very light, Boyd could not stand that. The surgeon's verdict was that such an idea was utter folly. "'I'll try to get a letter through with one of the boys,' Drew said. "'Major Forbes ought to be able to furnish Cousin Mary with safe conduct on that side. We could have the general take care of it from this end. Then she could take him home with her when he was able to travel. You write the letter fast. The Kentucks are making tracks today. Drew swung into the saddle, and they headed back to camp. Now that we ain't heading north, you thinking of joining Croft and Webb? Men on furlough had been given their orders to collect supplies from home but also to devil the Yankees when and where they could. They were to fire into transports along the rivers and rout and capture any Union patrols small enough to be attacked when and where they came across them. The Cherokee scouts and others who could not return home asked for their own type of furlough, determined to hunt the district below Franklin. Since such men could be of great nuisance value, well within the enemy lines, they were granted permission, and were even now preparing to move out. Drew, who had held off from committing himself to the expedition until he had the final verdict on Boyd, knew that Kirby was eager to go, and Drew felt that old restlessness which gripped him whenever he thought of spending days in camp. He could do nothing for Boyd, but they might be able to accomplish something in Tennessee. All right. He saw Kirby grin at his answer. The plan was one after the Texan's heart, and Drew knew what it had meant to him to hold back from it. You tell the kid? Dr. Fairfax did. At least he had not to deliver that blow, a small relief which did not, however, lighten his sense of responsibility. How'd he take it? Quiet on the surface. The boy who once would have fought stubbornly to get his own way the Boyd who would have pulled himself out of that big rocker and announced fiercely that he was riding home 
whether the doctor said yes or no, that Boyd was gone. Perhaps this new acceptance of hard facts was a matter of growing up. Drew clung to that. There was little he could do except not go home without him. Your kid's going to be all right? Doc hopes so, if he takes it easy. Ever feel like this here war's running down? I don't see how we can keep on much longer. Some of the boys are talking Texas. Get us down there, and we can go off, be a republic again. Wouldn't be the first time the Tejanos stood up all by themselves. Suppose this fighting here stops. You riding for Texas? I might. Kirby slapped his hand on the horn of his Mexican saddle. Now that's what an hombre wants to hear. You change pastures on a good colt, make him even fatter. Come, blue bellies. All over this here territory, we just shift range, and nobody's going to take Texas. Even the horny toads would spit straight in a Yankee's eye. How about it, Sarge? They were at the cluster of rail-walled huts where the scouts had established a temporary headquarters. Webb hailed them from the door of one of those dwellings where he was rolling up a rubber cloth laid over corn husks to form the floor. You can tuck bound? No, riding with you boys. Doc thinks Boyd can't try it. Good enough, Sarge. We're pulling out as soon as Injun draws us some traveling rations. Just enough to get us there. We can eat off the Yankees later. Since 1861, the clothing of the Confederate Army at large had never matched the colorful sketches hopefully issued by the Quartermaster General's Department. Perhaps in Richmond or some other state capital, the gold lace exponents did appear in tasteful and well-tailored gray with the proper insignia of rank. Forest men, equipped from the first by the unwilling enemy, wore blue, a blue tempered tactfully and ingeniously by butternut shirts, dyed breeches, when there was time to do any dying, and slouch hats. But as Drew rode out with his squad, he might have been leading a Union rather than a rebel patrol, which, of course, was part of the necessary cover for venturing into the jaws of a very alert lion. Parts of West Tennessee were still Confederate-held, and through those they rode openly. But the countryside could offer them nothing in the way of forage. Two armies had stripped it bare during the past few months. Sometimes foraging parties on opposite sides had been known to combine forces under a private truce, or had fought brisk, bitter skirmishes to decide which would collect the spoils. If there remained a hog or a chicken still running loose, it certainly possessed the power of invisibility. They slipped across the river in one of the boats, kept by local contacts, acting in the scouts' service. Drew questioned the boy who owned their transportation. Sure, there's bummers out. Yankees say there aren't, but they ain't, he returned indignantly. They ain't riding for nobody but their own selves. Cut off a Yankee and shoot him for the boots on his feet, and do the same if they want a horse. Get catched, and they tell us how their scouts, working secret-like, scouts of iron. And if we catch them, Yankees, do the blue bellies take them? But they ain't nothing but low-down trash as nobody wants, for sure. He dug his pole into the water as if he were impaling a gorilla on it. 
They's mean, plenty mean, sir. Don't go fooling round with them. Any special place they hang out? Drew wanted to know. The boy shook his head. Oh, they holes up now and then somewheres. But there's a lot of empty houses about nowadays, and the bummers can hide out good without no one knowing they be there till they get ready to jump. Cut off a supply wagon or raid a farm or something like that. Riding the south side of the law, Kirby settled his gun belt in a more comfortable circle around his thin middle. Bet they know all the tricks of hopping back and forth across the border ahead of the sheriff, too. Time somebody collected bounty on those wolves' scalps. Ridding the country of such vermin was indeed a worthy occupation, and their private quest for an answer to Weatherby's fate might be a part of that. But their first duty was to the army. The gathering of information and any discomfort they could deal the Yankees must be their primary project. Croft brought them into a camping site he had chosen for just such use. It lay at the head of a small rocky ravine, down the center of which ran an ice-sealed thread of stream. It was not quite a cave, but provided shelter for them and their mounts. It was a clear night, and the ground was reasonably hard. They ate hard salt beef and cold army bread made with cornmeal, grease, and water the night before. Leave here in the early morning, the Cherokee outlined his suggestions. There's a road leading to the turnpike that's three or four miles from here. Last I heard, a bridge had washed out on the pike, and anybody riding from Pulaski to Columbia has to turn out and take this other way. Good cover on it, Drew asked. The best. I just got me one question, Kirby interrupted. Say we was to gobble us up a bunch of straying Yankees along this road. What are we going to do with them after? Four of us don't make no army, and we ain't going to be able to detach no prison guards. Of course there are them that said from the first that the only good Yankees are them laid peaceful-like in their graves. But I don't take natural to shooting men what are holding up the sky with both hands. Orders are to spread confusion, Drew observed. I'd say we hit quick and often. Take a prisoner's boots, maybe, and his horse and his gun. Also, Webb added, his rations and his overcoat, be he wearing one. Then turn him loose, after paroling him. The Yankees don't honor a parole no more, Kirby objected. What if they don't? A lot of men coming in saying they've been paroled will stir up trouble. Remember from what we've heard, a lot of the Yankees ain't any happier about fighting on and on than we are. So we take prisoners, get their gear, keep what we can use, destroy the rest, and turn the men loose. If we can move around enough, maybe we can draw some of Wilson's men out of that big army he's supposed to be gathering to hit us south. It's the old game Morgan played. Croft grunted. It may be old, but I've seen it work. All right, we parole prisoners and light out cross-country after a strike. I've been thinking... Kirby was checking the loading of his colts. If we start here, we can sort of work our way in. Coyote, right up close to Franklin. They'll be expecting us to light out for the home range, not go jingling into where they forded up. Might raise a sight of smoke that way. Get Wilson's boys on the prod for sure. Franklin? 
Croft repeated. Little below, maybe. From what the boy said, those bushwhackers move around pretty free, Drew reminded him, certain that the Cherokee was back to the desire to search for Weatherby. We'll see what kind of luck we have along this road. Injun scouted. You take first watch, Injun. Yeah. Drew heard rather than saw the Cherokee leave their camp, bound for a lookout point. The other three bedded down, anxious to snatch as much rest as possible. Long before dawn, they were on the move again, threading through the winter-seared woods. Croft brought them out unerringly behind a sagging rail fence, well-masked with the skeleton brush of the season. There was equally good cover on the other side of the road. Kirby climbed the fence, investigating a dark splotch on the surface of the lane. Fresh droppings. Been a sight of trailing long here recently. The rest was elementary. There was no need for orders. Croft and Webb holed up on one side of the lane well apart. Drew and Kirby did the same on the other. Waiting would be sheer boredom, and in this weather, the height of discomfort. The gray of early morning sharpened the land about them. Boyd would have enjoyed this game of tweaking a wildcat's tail. Drew chewed his lower lip, tasting the salt of sweat, the grit of road dust. Just now was no time to think of Boyd. He must concentrate on the business before him. He heard the sharp chitlin of an aroused squirrel, repeated in two shrill bursts. But his own ears close to the ground told him that they were to expect company. There was the regular thud of horses' hoofs, the sound of mounts, ridden in company, and at an even pace. The only remaining question was whether it was a Union patrol, and small enough for the four of them to handle. One, two, two more, five of them, topping a small rise, a cavalry patrol, and the odds were not too impossible. Drew sighted Sergeant Stripes on the leader's jacket. It would depend upon how alert that non-com was. Wilson was drawing in new levies, so these men could be new to the district, even green in the army. The Yankee sergeant was past Kirby's post now, and after him, the first two of his squad. He paid no attention to the bushes. Webb's carving and Kirby's colts cracked in what seemed like a single splat of sound. One of the troopers in the rear shouted, grabbing at a high point on his shoulder. The other one was thrown as his horse reared, its upraised forefeet striking another man from the saddle as he endeavored to turn his mount. Drew fired and saw the sergeant's carbine fall as he caught at the saddle horn, his arm hanging limp. Surrender! As Drew shouted that order, into the tangle below, he leaped to the right, a single shot clipped through the bushes where he had been, answered by a blast from Webb. Then hands went up. Men stared white-faced and sullen at the fence, behind which might be a whole company of the enemy. Drew came into the open. Dispensary had taken from Jazz, covering the sergeant. For the expression on the non-com's face suggested that, wounded as he was, he would like nothing better than to carry on the struggle, with Drew as his principal target. Go ahead. Get it over with, he spat at Drew. For a second, Drew was bewildered. 
and then he suddenly guessed that the Union soldier expected to be shot out of hand. His anger was hot. We don't shoot prisoners. No, the evidence is not in favor of that statement. The Yankee spoke dryly, his accent and choice of words, that of an educated man. What brand you think we're wearing, fella? Kirby had come out of the concealment, his colt steady on the captives. Gorillas, I'd say, the sergeant returned heartily. Drew realized then that their mixture of clothing must have stamped them as the very outlaws they wanted to hunt down, as far as the Union troopers were concerned. Now that's where you're sure jumping your fences. Kirby's half-grin vanished. We're General Forrest's men, not guerrillas. Or ain't you never heard tell of Forrest's cavalry? Seems like anyone wearing blue and forking a horse ought to know who's been chasing him to hell and gone over most of Tennessee. Lucky I ain't in a sod-pawn mood, hombre, or I might just want to see how Blue-Belly Sarge looks without an ear on his thick skull. Or maybe try a few Comanche tricks of hair-trimming. Gorillas. The Union sergeant glanced from Kirby and Drew to his own men. One was sitting on the edge of the road, nursing his head between his hands. Another had his hand to his shoulder, and the sticky red of fresh blood showed between his fingers. The two others, very young, stood nervously, their hands held high. If the Yankee non-com was thinking of trying something, his material was not promising. Drew broke the moment of silence with a warning. You're surrounded, subject to fire from both sides, Sergeant. I suggest you surrender. You will be treated as prisoners of war and given parole. We are from General Forrest's command. We're scouts, believe me. If we had wished to, we could have shot every one of you out of the saddle before you knew we were here. Guerrillas would have done just that. The logic of that argument reached the Union sergeant. He still eyed Drew straightly, but there was a ruefulness, rather than hostile defiance, in his voice as he asked, What do you plan to do with us? Nothing. Drew was crisp. Give us your parole. Leave your arms, your horses, your rations, if you are carrying any. Then you are free to go. We've been ordered not to take parole, the sergeant objected. General Forrest hasn't given any orders not to grant it, Drew countered. As far as I'm concerned, you can take it. We'll accept your word. All right. The other dismounted awkwardly, and with one hand unbuckled his saber, dropping his belt and gun. Kirby went among the men, gathering up their weapons. Then he and Drew tended the slight wounds of their enemies. You'll both do until you can get to town, Drew told them, and you've a road and plenty of daylight to help you foot it. To Drew's surprise, the sergeant suddenly laughed. This ain't going to sit well with the captain. He swore all you rebs were run out of here a couple of weeks ago. You can assure him he's wrong. Drew saw a chance to confuse the enemy. We're very much around. You'll be seeing a lot more of us from now on, a lot more. They watched the squad in blue, now afoot, plod on down the road. When they were out of sight around a bend, Webbencroft came out of hiding to inspect the spoil. Unfortunately, the Yankees had not possessed rations, but their opponents acquired five horses, five Springfields, four sabers, and three colts 
as well as welcome rounds of ammunition. A fine haul. Croft methodically smashed the stocks of the Springfields against the rock and pitched the ruined weapons back of the fence. They had seen during the retreat just how useless those rifles were for mounted men. The sabers were broken the same way, but the rest of the plunder was shared. Webb appropriated one of the captured mounts. They stripped the others of their gear, taking what they wanted in the way of blankets and saddle equipment, and were putting the horses on leading ropes when a volley of shots ripping through the early morning froze them. Croft whirled to face the road down which the Yankees had vanished. Came from that direction. They mounted, taking not the open road but a cross route the Cherokee indicated. Coming out on the crest of a slope, they were above another of those hollows through which the road ran, and in that way lay still blue figures. Drew's carbine swung up as men broke from ambush and headed toward those forms. No Confederate force would have wantonly butchered unarmed and wounded men, nor would the Yankees, which left the scum they both hated, the bushwhackers. Just as the crack of the murder guns had earlier torn the quiet, so did the Confederate answer come now. Three of those advancing on their victims dropped. One more cried out, staggering toward the concealing bush. Then more broke from cover beyond, going in the flight up the other side. Croft Webb after them. The Cherokee scout was already booting his horse into a run. Drew and Kirby reached the road together. Slipping from Hannibal, Drew knelt by the Union sergeant, turning the man over as gently as he could. But there was no hope. The Yankee's eyes opened. He stared up with a cold and terrible hate. Shot us, after all. Murder, he mouthed. No, Drew cried his protest, not us. But that head rolled on his arm, and Drew was forced to swallow the fact that the other had died believing that treachery. Kirby rose from the examination of the rest of the bodies. Got em all. Must have been as easy as shooting weanings. They didn't have a chance. We got three. He made a circle about one of the dead gorillas. But that don't balance none. Drew lowered the dead sergeant to the surface of the road. It sure doesn't, he said bleakly. We'll go after him if we have to ride clear to Ohio. End of chapter 15